Uh, every year at church, uh, we pick an Old Testament book from the Bible, and we work our way through it. Now, I'm not sure what your feelings are when it comes to the Old Testament. A bit mixed, I imagine. Uh, my journey when it comes to the Old Testament is a similar journey to that of drinking coffee. Uh, when I was young, I hated the stuff. It was too bitter, and I didn't go anywhere near it. So what did I do? Added four or five teaspoons of sugar, add a bit of chocolate, make a mocha, and I enjoyed it. But then I persevered, and now I enjoy a cappuccino, which is good, and it is rich, and it has been a gateway to a whole bunch of relationships that have caught up with people for a cup of coffee. The Old Testament has been quite similar. At first, when I was young, I didn't go anywhere near it. Too foreign, right? But bit by bit, it's become a bit sweeter. I read a book like Ruth or a psalm or parts of Genesis. And... But it's involved a bit of perseverance. And now when I open up a book of the Old Testament, there is a richness there. And it has been a gateway to enjoying a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, one that I wouldn't have if I just stuck to the new. So the book we've chosen is the book of Nehemiah, a book that takes place in the spring and summer of 445 BC. And it is all about rebuilding a wall around Jerusalem. Now, often this book gets brought out to church when there's time to build a church building, right? So they're building a wall. Well, we're building a brand new auditorium with a smoke machine and everything, right? They bring out the giant thermometer gauge to say, we're going to raise this amount by the end of the sermon series, and that's how it normally goes down. If that's your experience of it, it generally leaves you with a bitter taste in your mouth, right? That's not the purpose of this book. Nehemiah is a personal memoir to show you that when all seems hopeless, God is true to his word. That following God is going to involve internal battles of sin and external battles of opposition. But God is in the business of restoring his kingdom and reviving the hearts of those who follow him. And my prayer is that the next 10 weeks as we look at this, whether it's familiar or unfamiliar book to you, the book of Nehemiah, that by the end you will grow in a deeper relationship and love of the greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ. On your seat, you would have had hopefully one of these. Uh, this is for, your, for you to have, to take. In it, has got a bit of historical background to Nehemiah. It's got some maps. I've got a chance to you write notes, song of the week, uh, Bible readings. Uh, take that, use it as you will. But I'm going to invite Hamish up now. He's going to re- bring to us our first chapter in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, our reading this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 1. Find it on page 412 of the Church Bibles. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble, 
and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Nehemiah would profoundly change the city of Jerusalem, and yet, at present, he had never even seen it. He had never stepped foot anywhere near it. See, Nehemiah was a Jewish man who grew up in Persia. His city, his people, had been taken and destroyed by the Babylonians a century prior. He'd never seen it. But he would have grown up on his mother's knee with her telling of Abraham, their forefather, who God had promised to make a people for himself. He would have grown up with walks with his dad, with his dad telling about the city of Jerusalem, how the times where King David and Solomon made it into this amazing place with the temple at the center. He would have grown up with his fellow Israelites, with them saying how God was faithful, but they as a people had not been faithful. And after warning, after warning, after warning, they had walked away from God. And so God exiled them, banished them, with the Babylonians coming and destroying everything and taking them with them. And some were thrown into the lion's den. Nehemiah, in his workplace, would have heard how King Cyrus, a Persian king, had funded the restoration of Jerusalem through Zerubbabel and and Ezra, that Cyrus was, though foreign king, building the city of Jerusalem, the, the temple and the city itself. But Nehemiah himself had never been there. 
He'd heard about it, never seen it. And this personal memoir, the book of Nehemiah, begins with some bad news. Have a look with me, verse 3, chapter 1. Bad news from his brother. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, this great trouble, distress, is not talking about the Babylonians, right, when they came in and decimated the place. He's talking about how the current walls and gates have been destroyed. Now, building walls in our day is very popular with certain presidents, right? But building a wall in this day was not about an immigration policy. It was about security. It was about safety, protection. Because all the good that had happened under Zerubbabel and Ezra, as they were beginning to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, could all be lost without a secure wall protecting them. Because any nation that had a little bit of muscle could come in, flex it, and they would be destroyed or could be lost. Nehemiah gets this news and it is bad. And because it is a personal memoir, we get his experience, his reaction to it. Have a look. What does he say? Verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. He doesn't dismiss it, saying, oh, well, that's a shame. He doesn't panic, afraid I'm freaking out, right? No, no, no. What does he do? He sits and he mourns and he weeps. Nehemiah is a great leader, as we'll soon come to see. He is a man of great influence and significance, but he is a man who's not afraid to share his emotion. Where you or I might edit out in our memoirs the tears, Nehemiah doesn't. And notice what the tears are over. It's not over actually bricks and mortar, walls and gates. You know what it's over? Verse 6, the people of Israel. People mattered more than things. Now, this is important to us blokes, right? Because if the only time we cry is where the car's been scratched or with the bike's damaged or our sporting team loses. Something's missing, isn't there? People matter more than possessions. And Nehemiah spouts tears from his eyes because he has a concern for people. After hearing the bad news and receiving it, what does he do? He prays. For some days, verse 4 says, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, Myra's first response, I don't know about you, when I hear bad news, is to do what? Fix it. Who do I call? Who do I text? Let's start a GoFundMe page, right? Do, do, do. But Nehemiah's first response is to pray. You know, they did some Aussie research recently on growing evangelical churches, churches that believe the Bible, they're trying to work out what is the unifying factor that is common to growing evangelical churches. And what they found was interesting. It wasn't the church denomination, the leadership style, the church structures. The common factor that united growing evangelical churches was the senior pastor's prayer life. As a man of prayer. Leaders are known for what they do the actions they take. But Nehemiah's first step of action is to pray. 
and pray hard. Nothing is more important than that. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? The most important thing you can do is to pray. Because we often tell ourselves, strong Christians, they pray, right? Nehemiah's a strong Christian, that's why we pray. If I was a strong Christian, I'd pray more. But you know why strong Christians pray more? Because they realize how weak they are. See, the more you think, I can fix it, the less you'll pray. And the more you realize how helpless you are, in fact, the more you'll pray. Pride and prayer are very much connected. And you notice here, it's not a quick prayer. It's not, dear God, please, but it's for some days. He's persistent. He keeps knocking on God's door, prayer after prayer after prayer. And so we get a little window into what he actually prays. And we'll look at three things. Prayer, I don't know if you're in this room, and prayer may be unfamiliar. You may have never prayed in your life and thinking, what is prayer? This will help, right? Three things. If someone, if you're here and you pray regularly, this will give you motivation to pray more. Three things, right? Firstly, notice, prayer is personal. Verse five, Lord, the God of heaven, the great awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying for you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. First thing, Nehemiah prays to a God who is personal. And he is a God who keeps his commandments of love, who keeps his promises, who keeps his word. You know there's people in your life who I call slippery eels. You know, they, they say one thing and they do another. They say, that's not what I meant. Well, I never really said that. And they somehow get out of the words that they've spouted from their mouth. God is not like that. Nehemiah prays to God because he knows he doesn't change. He is true to his word. He's reliable. And even though, right, he's the God of heaven, the great awesome God, his ears and eyes are still attentive. In less than two weeks, we've got the federal election, right? As you're obviously aware. Bill Shorten and Scott Morrison are two very busy men, right? Why? Because they want to win an election. Now, if you called their office and said, I'd like to speak to Bill, I'd like to talk to Scott and tell him that the mug that I love has been broken. What do you think they're going to do? Unless there's cameras or press, they ain't going to give you a second of their time, right? Because they're going to win an election. But if you were Bill or Scott's child, their son and daughter, and made that call, they'd pick up, wouldn't they? Because no matter how busy they are, they've got time for their children. And God, winning election, he is running the universe. And yet, he stops and his ears and eyes are attentive to you and your need. Prayer is personal. The second thing we notice is prayer is honest. Because prayer is personal, the first thing Nehemiah does is he speaks to God in confessing his sin, acknowledging his wrongdoing. Have a look, verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, by default, some of us are good at acknowledging the sins of others, right? 
You say, well, you know, here's the problem with those Christians, those conservatives, those progressives, those young people, those old people, whoever they may be. And we distance ourselves and somehow we're not in the firing line. They're the problem and this is what's wrong with them. But Nehemiah, notice he doesn't do that. He includes himself. We have acted, including myself, he says. But unlike our hyper-individualistic culture, right, which is say I should only be held accountable for what I do and nothing else, Nothing else sticks. Nehemiah doesn't follow suit. He knows his part, though an individual, he's part of a community. He and his family. He and his people. He confesses the wrongdoing, what he has done, but also his wider community. That's different, isn't it? Now, in our culture, we're all about community, right? We love the word community. But whenever the community we're involved in does slightly wrong, what do we do? We distance ourselves. So that's not me. I'm the exception. Because we do it, I think, because we're worried about what people think about us. You know? Might feel intolerant or different or don't want to be caught up in what they're doing. But Nehemiah, he doesn't do that. He knows he's an individual but part of a community and he says, we have acted very wickedly toward you. His concern is not what people think. His concern is what God thinks. When was the last time you confessed your sins to God? Confessed the sins of your family, your church, your people, your nation? rather than I language, us language, and the wrongdoing we have done to God. There's probably two things stopping you from doing it. One is you don't think there's a problem to begin with. Um, if you get sick, right, what is the thing they tell you not to do? Google your symptoms, right? Don't self-diagnose. Think, ah, oh, I got that rash, this looks right. Yeah, I think this is what it is, right? Why? Because you're not an expert. I went to a mental health class a couple of weeks ago where they talked about the whole range of uh, mental illnesses. And by, through the course, you're thinking, oh, I think that person has this, and maybe that. And at the end of it, what do they say? Do not diagnose people. You're not an expert. When it comes to whether you're a sinner or not, do not self-diagnose. God is the only one who can give that diagnosis. And the diagnosis is we are all sinners. Verse 7 says, we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Some of you might know there's a problem, but the hard thing is admitting it. Because when you confess your sins, you, it puts you in a position of vulnerability, doesn't it? That's why politicians and celebrities very seldom do it. But Nehemiah confesses his wrongdoing and the wrongdoing of his people because he knows who God is. Martin Luther said this, if we know we are loved and accepted in spite of our sin, oh, that makes it far easier to admit our flaws and faults. And you notice Nehemiah, after confessing his sin to God, he doesn't wallow in it. He, he moves on. He, he doesn't say, oh, God, I'm, no, no, I'm really sorry. You probably don't love me. You're probably not listening. Oh, he doesn't wallow in it, no. He knows God has forgiven his sins, every single one of them. 
As Corey Ten Boone said, God takes our sin, the past, present, future, and dumps it in the sea and puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Nehemiah knows his sin's been dealt with and he doesn't fish. So that's the second thing. Prayer is honest. The third thing is prayer is remembering. Nehemiah looks to the past, looks to the, what God has done in the past to give him hope for the future. Have a look, verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. The first word of that chunk, remember. It doesn't mean God has forgotten that he battles with amnesia. It's Nehemiah saying, God, remember when you said that. He's telling himself, remember that moment all those years ago where you rescued your people with Moses from Pharaoh through the Red Sea. He goes back to a moment in the past to see what God has done so he can look at the future. He doesn't go back to a personal experience, you notice. He doesn't you know, talk about the time when he was bullied at school and how God got him through with that, when his mates would call him short because it was only knee high, right? He, he didn't go back to that kind of personal experience. You'll get that on the way home. <laughs> he goes back to a, something that's far more solid, the actions of God in redeeming his people. Because if he did it there, he can do it again. He's saying, even though we're exiled, even though we're scattered, even though we're on the, what is it, farthest horizon, the promised hope that you'll gather your people. You redeem them from the clutches of Egypt. You can redeem us from the clutches of Persia. You protected your people then, you can protect us now. You saved your people and brought them back to your land then, and you can do it again. Encouraged by the past, Nehemiah can face the future. And how does this prayer end? Verse 11, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. The prayer has all been leading to this moment. And the question to ask is, who's this man? As we'll see, it is the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. He is Nehemiah's boss. Because King Artaxerxes had the power, had the wealth to fix the problem, to rebuild the walls and gates of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is in a position of influence. You notice he's what? A cupbearer to the king. Now, this is the type of job that you and I can't do anymore. We don't have cupbearers anymore. But a cupbearer, in, particularly in the land of Persia, was seen as a very trustworthy position because you would drink the wine before the king did to make sure there's no poison in it. I guess the closest example is my cousin is a baker out in Dubbo, uh, and she was asked to bake a cake for Harry and Megan, you know, the Duke and Duchess of somewhere, I don't know. But when they came to Dubbo, she was asked to build it, but she had to do it in top secret. She was, you know, 
they profiled her, make sure she was safe, trustworthy. She had to bake this cake, not tell anyone. And in fact, they weren't supposed to eat it, but Harry did in the end. Because a way to kill a king or a future king is to what? Poison. And a cupbearer's job was to protect the king. King Artaxerxes was a man who could fix the problem. And Nehemiah knew it. And he had an opportunity. He had the king's ear every time he tasted the cup or the king did. He knew what had to be done to ask, a big risk to ask for help. Now, often people say, well, people pray because they're lazy. They don't want to do anything. But prayer is never a substitute for action. Nehemiah knew what he had to do. He knew the words that had to come out of his mouth. But you know what he realized the first and most important thing was? Pray. Pray. And the most important thing that you and I can do when it comes to the actions we need to take is to be active in prayer. Millions of believers have pursued the same steps as Nehemiah and have not been disappointed. It is easy to do, easy to act, easy to fix, harder to pray. And someone like Nehemiah will motivate you to pray, I reckon, for about a day, maybe two. It is only the greater Nehemiah who will motivate you to pray for a lifetime. Because Nehemiah was not the last person to weep over the city of Jerusalem. In his last week of earthly ministry, Jesus looked over the Jerusalem, rebellious Jerusalem, and he couldn't hold back the tears. And just as Nehemiah had the king's ear and a position of influence as he held that cup, Representing his people. Jesus Christ has the ear of who? God the Father. Representing his people. And he holds a cup, but a different type of cup. Because here's the thing. Jesus Christ is not a hyper-individualist. He doesn't say, well, I should only be held accountable for what I and I do. No, no, no. He takes the sin of his people on himself and owns it. And then, as a result, takes the cup of God's anger and drinks it dry so that you can be forgiven. Past, present, future, forgiven. And you know, because of that moment, that moment in the past where Jesus represents you, that just doesn't happen then. No, no, no. Jesus Christ is representing you now. Every time you pray, he is passing on your prayer requests to the ear of God the Father himself. You know when you pray and you think, is God listening? Did he actually hear that one? Did the, the communication lines open? Maybe he's angry with me. Because of Jesus Christ, the greater Nehemiah, because he has dealt with your sin and God's right anger towards it, Every time you pray, Jesus is representing you, passing, saying, hey, God the Father, Susan, she's worried. 
She's coming to you now in prayer. Listen to her. Jacob, he and his wife, they're battling with infertility. Listen to them. Jeff, the diagnosis is not good. He is praying to God. Listen to him. Jen, she's just lost her job. Listen to her, God the Father. And because of Jesus Christ, who is representing you, backing you every time you pray, God the Father's ears and eyes are fixed on you. You know, a couple of weeks ago, when the Woolies men came to our house, uh, he delivered our food, and there was an extra bag that didn't, we didn't order. Inside was basically nachos, or the food to make nachos. And so if that was your bag, I apologize, but it, it tasted good. It was really good. <laughs> but there was something in that bag which I didn't really know what it was. Pantene Pro-V. Leave on cream, intense smoothening. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it does. But it says smooth, dry, or unruly hair. I don't know what unruly hair is, but it doesn't sound good. But the thing that caught my eye was this phrase. Anytime, anywhere. I thought, really? Anytime, anywhere? Can you imagine you're a date with someone? Oh, tell me a bit about yourself. Do you mind? Oh, you like cycling. Oh, if you're in a job, you know, giving a pitch for a new project. My last point is, I think we should go. Sometimes, some places, right? I'd recommend doing this. Controlling your unruly hair. You know what truly is anytime, anywhere? Praying to God. Because prayer is personal. And he's listening. He is busy, but he has time for you. Prayer is honest, where you can come with your faults and flaws, knowing he'll forgive you. And prayer remembers that greater Nehemiah who stood in your place, took on your sin, so that God the Father will listen to you anytime, anywhere. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, We thank you, we thank you that we can talk to you and that you want to listen to us. Oh, but Lord, know that may be true, praying is hard because we think we can fix it ourselves. And so we do and we do and we do, but Lord, may we be motivated by Nehemiah, whose first call to action was to pray. May we be men and women who pray, not just for a moment, but for days, bringing our worries, our needs, our concerns, the bad news to you, knowing because of you, Lord Jesus, our Heavenly Father hears every single one of them and that his ears are attentive and his eyes are open anytime. Anywhere. Amen.